0: Danielle DeVoe, you are listening to Midtown Conversations. I am here with our city's panel, and that includes Melissa Bowman, creator of the Citified Substack, co-founder of WR Yimby, and a great community advocate that I'm sure you have seen out there. Uh, Sam Nabby, downtown Kitchener business owner, musician, creator of the Tri-City Hip Hop Mapping Project, and former urban planner, and Alex Glass, executive director at ArtsBuild Ontario and a cultural spaces advocate. Panelists, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Today, we are going to talk about neighborhood character. What is it? Is it valid? Why do people use it? What are they trying to achieve? And just to give some context, when we're talking about neighborhood character, I think what we're talking about is in these development terms. when. Um, Developments are kind of being pushed back against because they're out of step, step with existing neighborhood characters. So in a heritage district that might be to do with uh, a new development that doesn't meet heritage designations or changing a heritage property in a way that, that is problematic. Um, or in sort of um, uh, single family home neighborhoods, putting in multi-family buildings. Uh, or changing the sort of where some of our commercial spaces are in relation to uh, residential or vice versa, uh, moving residential into some of our sort of business strips. Um, and actually one that I think of that we've seen happen a lot uh, downtown um, has been, you know, I, you know, where I'm cynical of this uh, rhetorical claim to neighborhood character in a lot of developments when I go downtown and see ground floor retail being used uh, by um, firms that don't really need that kind of to-the-street presence, so a tech company in a really great space that used to be uh, a cafe um, or um, a, a shop, you know, so, you know, what does it mean to be storefront downtown and 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 is that a justifiable kind of neighborhood character? Um, uh, uh, place where we can sort of insert that, that discourse to define who can be storefront downtown and, and who maybe should be upstairs or around the back. Um, but that's, uh, that's my own digression. Uh, but Melissa Bowman, I know you have, uh, with your work um, um, with WR Yimby, you certainly have um, talked a lot about this, this issue, and, and especially in, in these moments where, where Community members are resisting development because it's not what they want to see in their neighborhood, their kind of neighborhood. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the things you've seen and some of your thoughts on the issue.
2: Sure. Uh, Yes. So with uh, Waterloo Region, yes, in my backyard, you know, sometimes we're uh, at council meetings, delegating. um, Just for my own interest, I follow a lot of council meetings um, and anything that has to do with development. If there are delegations there, I can pretty much guarantee that you'll hear at least some of those delegations refer to things like neighborhood character, um, established neighborhoods. Uh, One I've heard more recently that really rubs me the wrong way is neighborhood integrity. I think they're all generally referring to some vague notion um, that I can't really put my finger on. Um, I'm not sure, I'm looking forward to hearing a bit from Sam with um, his planning background, if there's an actual definition. My sense is it's a um, feeling that people have. I don't know that there's clear, specific things that say this is neighborhood character. So when I hear it in council delegations and that type of thing, it's usually used that people want to protect the neighborhood that they're in Uh, from change. And and I understand that. I mean, I I love my neighborhood, and I think it works really well how it is. And so I understand that change can be um, scary at times. But I also think, um, as we said in, in previous discussions, like, a city is about evolving. And um, and changing over time, so I think that comes with being in a city, and it can be scary, but it can also bring like really um, great things. So I think of, um, yeah, I think that people who are using that term, I think, are doing it because they want to keep their neighborhoods that they love. They love, and and I can I can't fault them for that. Where I have problems is I think it keeps other people. Out and and that doesn't sit well with me um, so I think of an example um, just for us in my own neighborhood so before we moved here apparently um, there was one building that was going up on Queen Street and I think it was proposed at 17 stories. And a lot of people in the neighborhood, neighborhood groups were up in arms about that. It was going to ruin the neighborhood, uh, destroy the neighborhood. These are phrases that I often hear at council meetings. Uh, Again, I don't quite know what that means that a building could destroy a neighborhood. Um, Anyways, it came down from 17 stories to I think 14 stories. That building existed when we moved to the neighborhood and it is just part of the neighborhood to me that it's always been there as long as I've lived there. So I think the concern about it, it, it did, didn't ruin the neighborhood from my perspective, it was the neighborhood that I was coming to, but for the people who were living there, it felt like this change would would be too much for the neighborhood to handle. So um, I think if you go back and talk to those people, you know, five years later, it, it is just part of it. Those buildings do become part of the fabric of the neighborhood. I think one of the problems I have with neighborhood character is that it's often apartments um, or anything that adds some density and height to a neighborhood that people have most concern about. And and often apartments and condos um, can be more affordable options in neighborhoods as opposed to single detached housing. So I think they are needed in all neighborhoods across the city. Uh, I think they help bring vibrancy to neighborhoods, so I, I hate seeing that. A type of building is is assumed to bring a certain type of people or or that type of thing i've i've lived in a lot of different um types of buildings and homes in, in my time and i'm still the same person no matter what building i inhabit so um that's one of the things when i hear established neighborhoods and neighborhood character that i don't love i also think if if it just meant Design elements. So I think of um, the Barra Castle. Um, I believe they chose, you know, red brick and some some beige trim for that building to reflect the red brick um, houses that were in the neighborhood. And I'm like, hey, if that is what feels good for a neighborhood to have these um, elements in a new building uh, reflect what's already there. I can totally get behind that. It's more when it is used in a way that feels like its um, goal is to exclude people or or types of buildings and and that type of thing. So I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I'd love to know from Sam if there is sort of any planning documents that speak to that if you're, able to add something to that part of the conversation?
1: Um, Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, that's a great question. And I I really um, agree with a lot of your observations about how the idea of neighborhood character is often very vague. It's something that people reach for to make some argument about a sense of the place that they love and that they live in and that they they are concerned about a change that's happening. I, when I think about neighborhood character, I often think about uh, uh, Jane Jacobs, who is one of the you know foremost urban planning thinkers and, and basically influenced the whole discipline. Um, she wrote many books, including one called Death and Life of Great American Cities. Um, and she was a layperson. She wasn't a professional. She was in the, the mid-century um, looking at, at this top-down approach to city building where governments were just flattening entire neighborhoods and building shiny new projects that they said would be the best thing ever. And they just turned out to not be very good. Uh, good for social cohesion or for uh, helping a a vibrant neighborhood, and they ended up, you know, being failures 20, 30 years down the line. Um, But when she looks at neighborhoods in these books, in Death and Life of Great American Cities, you can can see how she thinks very specifically about every individual part of the neighborhood. So when she looks at a block and she says, I'm going to tell you about this block in Greenwich Village, and she doesn't say, you know, it's an established residential neighborhood, she says, there is a corner store, an apartment, a piano tutor, a daycare, a church, a liquor store, another apartment. She lists individually every little thing on the blog, and that's the only way she can describe it to us, because if you try to summarize or lump these things together, it's it, it, it takes away from the specificity of that place. And so... Um, one, one big point that she makes in that book, which I always think about, is um, creating neighborhoods where people can have stability means having places that are of different um, income, that can accommodate different income levels, places that can accommodate different family sizes, so that if you go from a, a single young person to finding someone that you want to spend your life with, to starting a family, to retiring, and living your old age, you can find somewhere in that neighborhood that will let you accommodate those different stages of life and you don't have to move to the suburbs once you get a kid um, and and leave all your connections behind. So uh, embracing diversity in a neighborhood really helps us with that stability because it means people can stay connected to their communities. If they have a, a job in the neighborhood, they don't have to move away. If they have a, a faith community or a social club that they're a part of, they can continue being part of it for the rest of their life. And it was a huge problem in the mid-century um, when the prevailing urban planning idea was to actually just destroy all of these neighborhoods and, and build um, you know, single-use residential towers with no amenities, you know, no jobs and and uh, orient everything around people having to drive on highways to get everywhere. So it's a bit of a, di- a digression, but I think it's important to not think about character as buildings, but think about character as who are the people and what are the things that you can do in this neighborhood. Um, when we think about uh, neighborhood character or urban character, uh, in the context of a development application that's coming up, usually it is uh, residents in century homes that are built one hundred or one hundred and twenty years ago, um, that are in an inner suburban or you know on the first ring of residential area outside of the a downtown core, and there's opposition to a higher density building. Um, but I think we also need to realize that those homes haven't stayed static. Uh, The people who live in those homes, the type of family makeup, the type of income hasn't stayed static. Uh, You know, a lot of these homes, when they were built, they were built for, depending on which neighborhood, they were either built for factory workers or factory owners. And some of them are, you know, some of them were mansions. And then um, through the decades, they may have gotten split up into multiple apartments within one home as these neighborhoods deteriorated and became less attractive. And people did move out to the suburbs. And these homes were split up and they were created, uh, you know, three or four or five apartments in there and, and families uh, who could afford to, to live in those spaces were living in them. And then as um, as uh, time went on, a lot of these neighborhoods experienced the pendulum swinging the other way where someone bought those homes, they took down the partitions, made it one family home again, did renovations. You see a lot of people um, in the past 10 years, I would say, moving into neighborhoods like Central Frederick, um, uh, moving into neighborhoods like Midtown, and uh, I'll leave the definition of Midtown very vague (laughs) for our listeners, Um, and and like Victoria Park. And there are a lot of homes that that need love and need a lot of work and maybe haven't been inhabited for a few years. And there are families that are moving in, trying to make a go of it because that's uh, uh, something that's in their their income level to raise a family, Um, but it means they're going to have to put in a bit of work to renovate that space. And, uh, you know, we can look at that and realize that these homes themselves, even without changing the structure or the style of building, have accommodated many different types of families and many different incomes over the generations. Um, So I think it's... It, people grasp this idea of, um, you know, a heritage, a heritage neighborhood has always been um, wealthy, responsible homeowners who take care of their properties, when that actually isn't the case, um, and you know th- those assumptions to begin with are a little bit fraud.
0: And I, I think one, the sort of oversimplification simplification of neighborhoods and who lives there. And one of the places that I, I see that happening to such an egregious extent is when we talk about artists and who artists are. So art you know, artists are often used to define neighborhoods if they're present. But it's always this kind of one type of artist, the, the single artist living in a, a gritty loft that's in a building that's about to be gentrified, and they can sort of have their art practice and, and, and live in this like below-market rent space, and they don't have any dependents, they don't have anyone relying on them, and that's what makes it possible. But, of course, in, in Waterloo region, and, and probably nowhere, is that an accurate portrayal of artists and you know I think about uh, an ar- ar- artist mapping uh, that the Waterloo region uh, conducted in I think 2008 or 2009 one of the interesting things about it was that it mapped individual artists and they were dispersed so in, in contrast to this kind of creative cities argument of all the artists live in this one place this is where they are in, in our region in 2008 artists were just living throughout the region across the Across the region because they're just normal people with families. Some of them live downtown, some of them live in suburbs, and and so taking taking the making artists be not this like special unique category of people who only inhabit um, culturally vibrant slightly messy downtown spaces um, um, is one way in which the sort of way that we think about neighborhood character I think is dis- disrupted a little bit in this region. And Alex, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Um, some of uh, the ways that the arts community in particular um, is sometimes used in these discussions of of neighborhood character, um, or or, um, I don't know if they're exploited per se, but.
3: Mm. It's a deep, deep current in in the dialogues that happen across the sector, for sure. Um, You know, cities do change, so artists come in, They are so important in, in helping our culture question everything we do and challenge us and then come, like i think of james street north and hamilton you know i was there 10 years ago at mcmaster in my undergrad we used to go all the time and all these artists go up to their studios and then all these restaurants come in and apartments um are, are are renovated and it takes on a new form and artists yes they're they they need space so they find a new spot and they do the same thing um and the, everybody just needs that that support in this time of transition. So there's so many cases to be made for artists in these spaces, but I think you know, as I was listening to Sam and listening to Melissa, the buildings need to support the people in the neighborhoods together. So we look at the existing infrastructure, which we, we did talk about, but I think about like a community center and what the community did to come together and make that space for the purpose that it served at that time. And then, the community evolves again. And we look at that that land might have a different value. And what does the community need it to do now? Um, and I think really just preserving those spaces for, for the community that came together to designate it as such is pretty important because it, otherwise it will be lost um, as as development continues. And, and I think of buildings like Crow's Theater in Toronto Um, They partnered with a condo developer um, so that their theater is in, I think, I believe it's the base floor, the second floor of the building. Um, So they saw what their organization was doing in the community and saw the changes that were happening and brought them together. And I think that there's opportunities for like that. Not that that model will work for everybody. And I think that's really challenging for many organizations to do right now. There's a lot of policy. There's a lot of um, just uh, relationships that need to be built um, to make that model work. Um, And it's fantastic that it did. But I think providing more opportunity um, and, and, and having the spaces support the people will help artists and preserve that neighborhood character
0: and one of the things that i think is really interesting about uh, urban development and frustrating is that you know it is hard to make bold moves i mean people have very entrenched ideas about what is appropriate in a space Uh, and uh, sort of zoning doesn't change as rapidly as people's lives do uh, and so, you know, it, when it's, it's nice, you can sit down and you can look at a, 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 a new planning book that has all kinds of exciting and interesting ways that you can build a more human city with, with better interactions and, and more mixing of services and, and income levels. And you can see, like, the ideal layout of this beautiful city block that has all the things. It has schools and, and, and lots of building, like, lots of space for living, and people can work there, and you can, your, your, your elderly parents can still stay in your own neighborhood you know the ideal version but then you have a real city block that has all kinds of complications in it in terms of what's already there and what people are going to be resistant to in terms of changing it and it's really hard to then intervene into that space in kind of your idealized way and that sort of frustration on the ground and Melissa I know you're, you're always watching these debates happen at council where people come in with their sort of various uh, viewpoints on what's appropriate for a neighborhood and, and, you know, and, and, and a lot of that is because the city is changing very quickly. We've had um, some people float the idea that maybe there should be a moratorium on development downtown because it really has grown so, so quickly. Um, but then of course we also have a housing crisis and, and so what, what have you seen and, and, and what are your thoughts on how, how difficult it is to actually make bold moves in
2: changing how our city is
0: put together? how long do we have to dive into these?
2: (laughs) Um, It feels like there's a lot in there. Um, A couple of the things that stand out to me are um, who has the resources and ability to advocate for what their neighborhood is, and and is that representative of the neighborhood as a whole? Um, So I was reading an article recently, and it was saying that um, the people who tend to delegate at council meetings, Tend to be um, of higher income, older, white, and male, um, and I think we can agree that those voices are are you know needed as one segment, but they are clearly overrepresented and and they don't speak for um, everybody in the neighborhood. But a lot of people don't have time, interest, um, the resources. Like it takes it takes all of those things to speak at council. Um, and to advocate for certain things. So I think we really have to look at who who is speaking for our neighborhoods. One of the things I've loved about being a part of Waterloo Region Yes in My Backyard is that we have a lot of um, younger folks and people who rent and encouraging them to delegate at council. So council members hear voices that um, are are not always heard. And um, not only are the delegates, um, you know, higher income older white males often the the people sitting around council horseshoes uh, fall into those categories as well so i think we really um wremby is there to try to educate and encourage um people who aren't always heard at council meetings uh to to have their voices heard i also think of the encampments that we have In in our region right now um, where there are residents who are literally um, you know just fighting for their right to exist in our community Um, and you know where are their voices in all of this and and thankfully we are seeing more advocates and and community organizations who are speaking up and supporting those residents and helping get their voices heard but when i see some of the issues that um encampment residents are dealing with and then i hear concerns in another neighborhood about um we want a building to come down two stories it doesn't sit well with me um yeah i I don't know what i think about all of that but it's there's some uncomfortable conversations that i think need to be happening around those issues um and yeah i'm up W. R. Yimby and, and myself as well, we're you know, pro-supply. I don't think there's anybody in our group who would say that supply alone is going to uh, fix all of these problems, but that lack of supply definitely makes a number of the problems worse. Um, so when we hear things like a proposal for um, a pause on, on all development, um, we have concerns about that. Um, I don't think locally something like that would, would move forward, um, but even the fact that it was proposed and that there are people who do seem supportive of that, um, I think housing is really a nuanced and complex issue. I know when I was running in 2018, um, I was like, hey, we need more affordable housing and we need to protect the line and we also wanna save all heritage buildings. and as I worked through those issues, there are times that those are in conflict. Um, And so deep, challenging conversations need to happen. I would love for all of those things to happen all the time, but sometimes we have to make choices and that's where these conversations um, are are needed, I guess.
1: I reflect on uh, experiences that I've had talking with people around a specific development going on in their neighborhood and and I find it always really helpful to keep asking questions about why and what exactly is causing this person to be upset or or opposed and it's different for everyone um you know I was talking with a friend who was very opposed to one of the new towers going up on Victoria Street and what it came down to at the end of the day was the architecture she didn't like that it was so tall and that there's this big black wall of brick and it was and it was specifically like the the color and the the darkness and the the modernist design of it that she was against i was talking with someone else about towers downtown generally and and i kept asking why and you know what what is it really that you're that you're uh, upset about with this and it came down to the fact that while i moved here 20 years ago, when it was more of a mid-sized city, and it feels like we're becoming a big city, and I don't want that. I don't want this many neighbors, and I, I feel like I should have to move out. And you know, at least they're being honest at that point. With you know, that's what that's what's setting this person off is that they don't want they don't want more neighbors. They don't want to live uh, uh, with so many more other people nearby. Um, so I do think it's different for everyone. And then we need to take a step back and, and make a decision of like what is appropriate for neighbors to have input on with regard to what new neighbors are moving into their neighborhood? So um, several years ago, uh, about 10 years ago, the Ontario Human Rights Commission put out um, a paper specifically about zoning and um, new development. And the main takeaway from that paper was that you don't get to choose your neighbors. Um, For a long time, we've had rules in planning that you're not allowed to people zone. So you can't target specific groups of people. That's discrimination. Uh, The city of Waterloo tried to do that many years ago with saying student housing needs to be this far away from other student housing. And that got challenged and and, uh, thrown out at the Human Rights Tribunal because you can't target something to students. Um, And you, you can't target based on family type or... Uh, age or sex or gender and so uh, I think we need to be very careful when we're opening up for public comment on on potential developments of what are we actually debating I don't think it's helpful for people to come into public meetings and say that they think this is a bad idea because they don't want renters nearby or this is going to bring students nearby or this is going to bring a certain type of people nearby um, because you don't get to choose your neighbors and that's not how we how we organize ourselves as a society um, there is a really great example of planning for neighborhood character that I've uh, that I've found, which is from the city of Ottawa. They have these neighborhood infill guidelines um, for how to deal with new development in a predominantly low-rise neighborhood, and they do set out character in the in the most clear and unbiased way that I've ever seen. And they they pick a few architectural elements, so they say, let's look at the front door and entrance and porch of the neighborhood. Let's look at the driveway, let's look at the garage. Um, and if most of the houses on this block have a front porch or have a front door, whatever your building needs to have a front porch and a front door. It could be an apartment, but don't stick the entrance in the back off of a parking lot and have, have no engagement with the street from the front. Um, If everyone else has garages that are set back at the back of the lot lot line and you have a long driveway going like behind the house, then your new development needs to have a detached garage in the back of the lot as well. And it's not saying anything about what architectural style to use or um, what uh, type of materials they need to use, whether it's brick or vinyl or what color paint. Because, I mean, when you think about it, do we really want... A society where neighbors are vetoing how you paint repaint your house like what color you use and what materials you use I think at a certain point your property is your property and, and if you want to build a brick house or build a vinyl siding house I don't think that's something that your neighbors should be uh, uh, saying one way or another about but these these guidelines from Ottawa they they really take a, an approach that I think makes sense it has to do with How do people and vehicles interact with the public street and just make sure that you're in line with what's going on uh, on your residential block when that happens? It still could be an apartment building, but if it has a front door and there's people that are hanging out on the front porch, I think that fits with the neighborhood character of low-rise houses with their front door with people hanging out on their front porch.
0: Thanks so much panelists. You're listening to Midtown Conversations. My name is Danielle DeVoe and this was my city's panel with Melissa Bowman, Sam Nabby, and Alex Glass. You can reach out to us at Midtown Radio KW on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening.